I'm Elizabeth Bick, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people, mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 308. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Böckmann. See ya! Tjena, tjena! Hello, hello! How are you? <laughs> Uh, not bad, thank you. A bit very much relieved because I've been trying to write up a book chapter on oh, why on the Star we Trek need, science. Yes. Ah. Why we need to follow Star Trek in order for humanity to build a better future for ourselves. And um, whew, it's been fun writing it, but I'm not a writer, so I'm very much not good in writing. So it's it's like, oh my God. That's a handicap if you I, want I to write a book. With that sentence, I just proved that I'm not good at speaking either. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's been fun researching it. It's been fun writing it up. And uh, now I'm actually thinking about doing that somehow in English as well. Because uh, I think it's a topic worth discussing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to ask, really when cool. is it available in English, Sandrash? Yeah, I'm working on it. I'm yeah, working on yeah. it. But I've I've got a lot of other kinds of work to do. I just announced in public, on radio, as the leader of the Hungarian Skeptic Society, that we're going to have a couple of things coming this year, like an, an event, a public event. We're going to be uh, giving out the Houdini Prize, which is That's um, right. well That's a recognition of people who do a lot for science communication mm-hmm. from a skeptical point of view. So things like that are in the making, and I announced all that, so there's no way we can back out from that. So, Good stuff. Uh, yeah. Good stuff. How are you? I'm actually similarly busy. We have, in the Swedish Skeptics, we have just announced today, actually, as we record this, this is the 12th of January, we have uh, announced the awards for last year, the Enlightener the of the Year Award uh-huh. and the Confounder of the Year Award. I'm so pleased that it sounds like an English word that English people probably understand, but it's not really a word. Uh, never mind. So what, is... what does it sound like in, in, in Swedish? <laughs> okay. So the Enlightener of the Year, which is yeah. more understandable in English anyway, it is Folkbildare. Is that it? Folkbildare, that's Enlightener. And uh, Confounder of the Year is Förvillare. Ah, but they sound very similar. A little bit, yes. And if you write them down, I think it's the same number of letters as well, so uh, you can confuse ah, okay. them. <laughs> but but it sounds the first the first name it sounded very much or at least the stem of the word sounded very similar to the name of the organization. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Is that yes? Um, it is the same word or the same root word. So, wetenskap och folkbildning. Folkbildning is building. Okay. Folkbildning is folk is folk. It's pub the public, yeah. and building yeah. is to educate. So. 
So folkbildning okay. is educating the public. That's the, the noun. And if you do that, you are a folkbildare. You are a person who educate the people, enlighten the people. So mm. you should you should be giving all this information out in Swedish. That's the sounds so cool. <laughs> you can go to vof.se and you will find all about right. it in Swedish, actually. In Swedish, which is oh, where we published nice. it. We sent out a press release, and uh, the mm-hmm. newspapers are starting to pick it up. And as usual, the confounder or the bad guy or bad guys in this case get more attention than the people who are doing good, which is. Unfortunate but understandable. I think it's more yeah. it's more sensationalistic to talk about somebody that's been really wrong to quote another podcast yeah. or this podcast. So a very good one though. I hear only good things about Whoever it. does this podcast is very good. <laughs> right. But I, hear. <laughs> I will I will keep you in suspense. I will talk about that next week when we also have Annika mm. with us. And today we don't have Annika. I think she is out uh, riding kangaroos or doing something very exotic in Australia. She couldn't join us, which was bad for her. We will, of course, have her back next week. But that means she missed a great interview that we just uh, had. That's right. With Elizabeth Bick, who is famous and uh, have received awards for her ability to spot problems with scientific papers. Well, and some of the awards that she received were for standing up for the integrity of science, That's even true. in the face of hostility. That's really something. And she's she's got a lot of hostility for her work, not necessarily from the side of... Um, and, but even from the side of scientists, yeah. um, which is terrible. Scientists should welcome criticism because that's what makes it better that's what we always say but turns out that the scientists can be very very sensitive when you point out that they have cheated or have (laughs) maybe not always cheated but have been sloppy or have failed to do their their homework and uh, if you point that out they can be very very testy well, but Annika will be able to listen to that interview uh, as well as uh, others. So why don't we move on to that interview Let's itself? Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Every now and then, we interview someone whose work is of interest to our listeners and skeptics around Europe. Elizabeth Bick is a Dutch-American microbiologist whose specialty is spotting photoduplications in scientific publications. As a result of her efforts, hundreds of papers have been retracted so far due to evidence of misconduct. She's a founder of the Microbiome Digest blog and the Science Integrity Digest blog. Her work is also frequently featured on Retraction Watch and she's a regular contributor at Pubpeer. She has received several prizes for her outstanding work in science popularization and science integrity. In November 2020, she received the Peter Wilde Prize by the Microbiology Society for communication of microbiology in education and to the public. Then, in 2021, she was awarded two prizes, both very highly regarded by skeptics, the John Maddox Prize and the Occam Award, both of which we reported on here on the ESP. Well, Elizabeth, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. (laughs) Well, your name is very frequently mentioned in the last couple of years by skeptics. So you've become quite a a celebrity among (laughs) us. But it's absolutely amazing. Apart from being a microbiologist, it looks like what you do for science integrity could easily be a full-time job. So 
how, how do you manage to still do research and outreach as well? Well, it is actually now my full-time research. So my full-time oh, okay. job, yes. I actually quit my job in March 2019 to dedicate myself full-time to science integrity. So I do some consulting on the oh. side. But uh, I'm, yeah, I'm mainly doing sort of volunteer work uh, and it's sponsored through a Patreon account that I have. But I volunteer all my time to look at uh, scientific papers that need maybe a correction or even a retraction. Right. So, so what is the most common problem with faulty science papers? What is the most common fault you find? Well, I specialize in looking at photos and duplications. So... Those are the, the most common problems I find because I focus on that. But it could be all kinds of things wrong with scientific papers. There could be conflicts of interests that are not disclosed or problems with the permits to do human or animal research. There could be errors in statistical analyses, leaving out particular results, uh, duplicating table values. And <laughs> I think I've seen it all. But I do yeah. specialize in, uh, in photos. So I look at photos from tissues cells, uh, blots, and uh, gels, and things like that. And so I find duplications and sometimes photoshopping in those. How did you come to find that that was your sort of thing to look at? Do you have a special ability to, to <laughs> remember photos and, and seeing things? Uh, I've seen this photo before. This is not the first time. <laughs> what's, what's the deal? Well, I cannot remember things forever, but I uh, I don't have a photographic memory, but I... I'm apparently pretty good in picking up patterns. So I've always looked in bathrooms or floor planks and tiles, and I've spotted patterns in them if these tiles or planks were artificial. So if you think of a laminate floor or a porcelain mm -hmm. tile, those could have repeating patterns. And I've always spotted those when I was in the bathroom. I'm like, oh, that tile is the same as that tile, but it's <laughs> upside down. And and I thought everybody would, everybody saw that, but apparently. <laughs> That is a crazy yeah, thing right. to have. And now I'm putting that to good use uh, for use in scientific papers. So I do remember them if uh, if, if they were like, uh, you know, within 10 minute range and then I start to forget them again. All right. Okay. Great. Speaking of patterns and, uh, well, spotting things that are not necessarily right. So this is a basic thing to how science works, right? A lot of people are spotting that. So basically peer review is there for exactly that purpose. So how did you end up doing that full-time i mean a lot of people just do it on the side but you started dedicating so much time to it that it actually became a massive thing <laughs> uh, not just for you and not just in your life but for all of us yeah so so peer review is not really designed to pick up problems with figures or or duplications or even fraud It should pick up some of that because some of the examples I'm finding are, mm -hmm. are so yeah. blatant that you think, why didn't nobody see that? But a pay reviewer <laughs> usually assumes that the, the data is real and, and sort of reviews it from that perspective. Mm -hmm. So what I mm -hmm. do is I look at papers that have been peer reviewed and have been published and are included in the main scientific databases. Uh, so all these problems that I'm finding have slipped through peer review. And I thought that somebody needs to do that as well, not just a peer reviewer. But if I pick up problems, I want to warn the reader that there might be a big problem with those papers. And, and so that is why I sort of feel it because I have this maybe this weird talent to pick up these duplications that mm -hmm. I should use this talent to good use and warn other people that there might be a problem with a paper. Mm -hmm. So do you do that on all 
areas, even areas where you're not maybe an expert yourself? Um, I tend to stick to molecular biology papers because mm-hmm. that's what I have, you know, have been educated in. So I can recognize those images. But occasionally I'm being asked to look at plots uh, from physics or chemical papers. And in some cases, I I look at the plot and I have no idea what is wrong with it, even if people say that there's a big problem with it and I don't see it. So if I don't understand what the problem is, I don't take on those cases. But if I see, for example, a a plot with a lot of noise and a big peak, but I see duplications in the noise, mm. in, in, in so this this little mm-hmm. you know wavy pattern, and I see repeats in that, then I yeah I will bring those to light. I will post about those. But uh, yeah, if I don't understand the problem, I'm not going to make any statements about those papers. Those are such fine nuances. Occasionally, that you you have to pick up. It's really a hell of a lot of work that you must be putting into it. Well, the, the the work is not so much in the scanning of the papers, because I can scan, if a paper doesn't have too many photos and they're not too complex, I can scan a paper in 30 seconds. <laughs> but if it, if it has obviously a lot of photos, then it, it will take me uh, maybe 15 minutes or so. But the most work is mm. in finding the papers, downloading them, opening the files. And if I find something, then marking it, like what are the duplicated parts, drawing colored circles around mm-hmm. it. But then, even that's a lot of work, but then the most work is trying to get the editors to alert them to these problems. So writing emails to editors, that is actually where most of the work goes in. And that can take hours and hours to find a person's email address. They're usually hidden on the pages of the uh, journals and trying to find it and then alert them and then resending my email and alerting them again if they don't respond. That is where what the the biggest time sink is. And I wish I had some help with that because that's not really that's the administrative part of my job and it's not really mm. what i should be spending my time on well it stands mm. to reason that there's a built-in resistance from the journals to receive criticism like that they say well it's peer-reviewed so here it is and and we don't want to retract them <laughs> right yeah. The, yeah. the papers that's that's right and it seems that a lot of editors are and, and publishers are not really interested in quality control, but they should be, right? Because the papers are expensive, even though we, we write them and peer review mm. them for free. It is expensive to either publish or to download a paper. These, uh, and if you work at a university, you might not realize how much money your university pays for these subscriptions. If these right. are paywalled articles, or if you submit an article, you have to pay up to $10,000 to get your paper published. So it is expensive, science publishing. But then the science publisher should also care about the quality of these products. If I return a faulty product, I want my money back and I want maybe a new product. Mm-hmm. I don't want the manufacturer to say, well, sorry, the wheel of your car fell off or sorry that your um, bookcase uh, you know, couldn't carry the weight of your books. I'm not going to return your money. No, we, we demand as customers then that we get our money back and... That doesn't seem to happen in scientific publishing. Uh, they don't care about these things. They look the other way. They ignore my emails. And that is frustrating. Hmm. So there's, there's not a very good response rate, I gather. When you actually get a response, does it tend to get hostile? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we've seen the hostility online towards what you do. And occasionally it's absolutely t- terrible. It looks like there is nothing of limits for some people. But what about the editors of the journals? 
The editors in general, if they respond, which is a big thing, so usually the responses are are polite and yeah, to the point mm-hmm. of like, we'll look into this. In the beginning, I did mm-hmm. get some not really hostile responses, but more like, who are you? Why should I care? Or like, I don't see it. Um, you're a nothing. So I did try to build up a reputation as a person who brings up good things. Like mm-hmm. I, I try not to call out mm-hmm. false positives. I try not to be accusing anybody of anything. I just raise a concern about an image. So the, the publishers and editors have been, uh, you know, they, they didn't act upon my things, but at least they remain polite. And usually I don't contact the authors myself. Um, if I post papers on Papier, the author will get an email as well, but they don't see my email address. So they need to either respond to me uh, and not respond at all, or if they respond, everybody can see their replies. And I do think mm-hmm. that keeps down the hostility. But yeah, the, the most hostility I've received was on Twitter, where people hide behind mm-hmm. anonymous accounts and might set up multiple accounts Basically, I've very rarely seen them discredit the things I'm finding. They try to discredit me as a person. So they would call me a mm-hmm. failed scientist or who is this woman? <laughs> or like, oh, she only has 40 publications, but the author she's criticizing has 4,000 publications. So she must be wrong. And it shouldn't matter how many publications one have, right? You can be a good scientist yeah. and criticize another person. So. Mm-hmm. The real hostility is on Twitter, and it's because people can hide behind anonymous accounts, so they can say whatever they like That's and right. hide behind them. Yeah. Having said that, though, um, we, sh- we are very big fans of yours, but have you ever been uh, wrong when you've called out something? <laughs> uh, I have been wrong, yes, but I would think only maybe 10 times or so, and I've reported 5,000, 6,000 papers by now. That's a good hit rate, I it's, would say. Well, and, and the thing is, like, am I wrong or, or uh, like, I don't even know because most of these cases haven't been investigated. Mm. The way I try to word it is I will say that this panel looks very similar <laughs> to that panel. In that way, I can never be wrong mm. because they are similar. <laughs> yeah. So I try to remain as objective as I can. And where I have mm-hmm. occasionally being wrong is where two panels look similar or overlap, but they were actually the same experiment, but their labels were very confusing. So they, okay. they, they were labeled mm-hmm. A in one figure and B in another figure, but it was actually the same experiment and it becomes technical very quickly, but there are reasons where that can happen. And so they, yes, they were similar. I was right in that, but I wasn't, I was wrong in that these were different uh, or not different experiments. So, and I, I appreciate mm-hmm. that. If the author tells me, you're right, these are the same images, but they're also the same experiment. I'm like, oh, great, fine, all good. Yeah. But in most yeah. cases, I don't get that reply. So I assume I am right. And I might be wrong in that. But <laughs> others have called my success rates like 90 to 99% accurate. Mm-hmm. And I'll take that. But uh, that's a pretty good success rate. Right, mm. right. Well, mm. I, I, I'm not and, successful uh, in getting these papers retracted because my success rate in retractions is only uh, 10%. And that is because most, mm-hmm. in most cases, the journals don't act. That's right. Mm-hmm. That was actually the thing that I, w- I was going to ask you anyway. You did mention that you work on already published papers. So it's either retracted or there's no update that you can do to an already published paper. You can only retract it or leave it like that, right? No, that's that's not, right. not right. So okay. there are two other ways that a publisher can address an issue, which one is a correction 
which is sometimes called corrigendum or sometimes erratum. Uh, they all have different Yeah, but names. it's a separate writing. So they write up a correction right. piece. Yeah, but it, it might address an issue. And then there's the mm-hmm. expression of concern, which is a mm-hmm. an action that is actually not used as much as I would like it to see because it tells the reader there's a big concern about the paper, but we are still investigating it. But in the meantime, we'll let yeah. you know that there is a warning. And mm. I like that to be used more often. Yeah, but what I was saying is that there is no way an already published paper can be changed. Some pieces of the paper can be changed after the publication no, no, retrospectively. No. It's already published, right. so it's there. We can either issue a, a corrigendum or, or mm-hmm. something like that or retract it, but it's already published, so it's there. Right. No, yeah. one of the, the issues with that is that people download a PDF and mm-hmm. meantime the paper can get retracted. And they might not know it yeah. because they have the PDF on their computer. They have read the paper That's many right. times. And yeah, it, it could create all kinds of difficulties. And so people could not know that they are citing a retracted paper. And it might be good to alert them to mm. that. I was part of a, a group of people who were trying to think about different ways of uh, addressing that. Because it mm-hmm. might be good to so, know that a paper was retracted. That's right. So that brings me to another question. How much value does it hold for the integrity of science and the quality assurances to retract a paper that has already been published with something that is not right? There is tremendous value in that because it tells the Mm -hmm. reader that there is a big problem with this paper and the paper will still be available. You can still download it. You can still read it, but it's retracted. Uh, Sometimes they put a watermark over uh, the PDFs. Mm -hmm. I feel there's tremendous value. It's, it just sends out a very, mm-hmm. very strong signal, both to the authors as well as to the readers. It doesn't prevent people from misciting a paper that has been retracted, though. So if people want to misuse information, there have been several papers with misinformation that have later been retracted because they either contain misconduct or they contain um, falsified data, uh, all kinds of twisting the truth. And those papers will still be cited. If you only think about the Andrew Wakefield paper that claimed that vaccines would cause autism, it took 12 years to get it retracted. It um, There was misconduct associated with the, the data. The data has been falsified and fabricated. But that paper is still being used by a lot of people to bring out misinformation. Oh, yeah. And so it doesn't prevent that from happening, but it prevents the scientific community from citing it. Mm. How often is it that people falsify pictures or or data in in their research? So that's a question I was asking myself when I first found these things in uh, 2014. So what I did is I looked at 20,000 papers in the molecular biology field that had photos. So they had to have a photo, at least one photo of something, and then I uh, would count them. And in those 20,000 papers, I found around 800 papers with image duplications within the paper. So either within the same figure or between figures, not across papers that would would have been too hard to to look at. So it's 4% of papers, 1 in 25 that I found that had these types of problems. And some of those, about half of those Mm -hmm. we estimated were done intentionally. The other half might have been errors or sloppiness. But I do think there's much more than 2% of misconduct in the whole literature, and not just in, in photos. If you think about how easy it would, it would be to create a false line graph, you can just type in some numbers, create a beautiful bar graph or table, 
and it would look really beautiful and you can publish that and who would mm-hmm. know it's falsified. So I think the real percentage of misconduct is more in the 5 to 10% range across all mm. literature. But that is very high. I mean, it is very high. Is there research that goes into the causes of this? I mean, what makes people do that? Uh, you said that uh, about half of, of your findings turn out to be like honest mistakes or of, of some sort, but the other seemed deliberately altering something. So it bogs my mind how <laughs> people get into doing that. Is there research out there addressing that question? Yeah, I mean, the main cause has to be the pressure to publish. We demand mm. of scientists that they publish an X amount of papers per time unit. If you do a postdoc, mm. for example, and you want to have a nice letter of recommendation to go to your next postdoc or to become a, an assistant professor somewhere, you need to have a glorious publication list and preferentially published in, in nature and science. Uh, you know, the higher impact factor, the better. And so we we use publications as a measure of output for scientists. And mm-hmm. that will drive people to falsify results because, you know, if you have better results, you can publish maybe in a higher journal or you would otherwise not be able to publish it at all. And what we increasingly see is that in countries where publications are really counted or even necessarily to uh, finish, for example, medical school, and, and there's a specific example in China where if you finish medical school, you have to have a paper published before you can get a position at a clinical hospital. In that situation where you ask people to publish papers, but don't give them time to do research, people are starting to cheat and they will buy fake papers. So there's this whole paper mill industry where people are generating completely fake papers with photos probably artificially generated and and data and patients that probably never existed then those uh, paper mills sell these papers to authors who need the papers. So if you if you put too much pressure on people, they're going to cheat. And science is just a slow process. If you if you force people to publish results in a certain time frame, that's where you create uh, an atmosphere where fraud is going to be rampant. So you, you you did mention that paper mill in China. You went into quite dived right into uh, many of those publications. I understand you've uh, identified a couple of hundred of those papers. So that's just the surface then that can be identified because of duplications. Or do you work with other things like other types of manipulations as well, like photoshopping or things like that? Well, first of all, the the paper mill uh, part, I need to give credit. I'm just part of a whole team. There's lots of people who who use anonymous names. I seem to get all the credit for it, but uh, I did work on it, but I I wasn't the main person uh, behind the scenes. So I do want to give credit to my anonymous fellow uh, (laughs) image forensics uh, people who found that. Yeah, so what I focus on is uh, these papers have a particular title structure that we recognized. And they had a particular background in Western blots. Since we have discovered this big set of papers, uh, the new paper mill productions that we suspect are paper mill productions, so are fake, have upped their game. So they, they're making fewer errors. So we, it's harder to catch them. We might suspect that a particular paper is not real, but it's really hard to prove. But we have alerted most of the publishers who have been a victim of this scam. And they have also increased yeah, their guards to these papers. So uh, in particular, when papers are submitted en masse, so uh, all from the same email address, and the email address is not an institutional email address, that might be a red flag. And so 
the publishers mm-hmm. are rejecting more and more of these papers. But it's hard to sometimes know if there's a duplicated figure, yes, we can raise that issue. If there's no duplicated figure, it is very hard to raise suspicions. You don't want to falsely accuse people. Now, I was wondering if, because so far in our discussion here, it sounds like you have a special intuition to spot fake photos. But there must be some rules or some help guidelines, tools that you can use to identify problems. Yeah, so I still mainly use my eyes. I'm currently using some software that's available for free. And um, so one is Fig Check and one is Image Twin. And so I'm using those software tools. There's there's a couple of others for specific uh, purposes. But they're, they're not very good in finding Western blots, but they're incredibly good in finding overlaps between complex figures with lots of panels where you see, let's say, uh, 20 photos of long tissues or so. And they, they will find the overlaps there with within a second. And it's just fantastic to use that software. But there's other software that is being developed for that purpose, which is being tested by several publishers. So hopefully that will be used in the future to scan all manuscripts. And so that will, I I suspect that these software tools will become better and better and will be able to screen massive amounts of data. And they they can be used even before the paper is accepted. Yes, yes, yes. That would be a great improvement. Exactly. You want to prevent these things from being published in the first place, right? It will. Yeah. Yeah. Once something is has been published, it's just hard to remove it and get rid uh, of it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. You you mentioned also you're working with other people. It's not just you. Is is it true that you're also training other people into doing what you're doing? Or, or or have I misunderstood that? <laughs> well, I'm training them on Twitter. So I play the game okay. uh, with the hashtag mm-hmm. image forensics. And I basically Ooh. what I do is I, I turn my findings into puzzles. So I will show a figure that has a duplication that I found. And I will put it without my markings. I will put it online on Twitter. And I will say, image forensics, can you spot the duplication? Mm-hmm, People yeah, enjoy that, that because uh, the first <laughs> I try, I mean, I don't always hand out awards, but um, if I'm still online, I will hand out an emoji award to the first person who has the right answer. And of course, people are competitive and they like playing that game. And I try to play it at different times of day. So there's there's a good chance if you're in a different time zone, you might also see one. That is sort of my secret training of everybody to just become alert to these problems. And once you you've seen a couple of them, I think most people can pick up these duplications themselves. There's people who are absolutely not talented at all. I can tell you that. <laughs> but I think about at least okay. half of the people see it and uh, will will start to find them themselves in papers that they're reading. Because I cannot possibly mm-hmm. and and even my you know my fellow image forensics people we're we're just with too few to possibly scan sure. the whole body of literature so we we can only you know check a fraction of it so i hope to have trained a lot of people but that's my only training i'm doing oh well that's very cool we need more bics online or in the <laughs> scientific community <laughs> yeah and it's, it's mind blowing how this is only related to pictures we can find so many that need to be raised a flag about However, as I understand, you initiated a blog, Science Integrity Digest. So does that do more than dealing with photos? Does it have a wider scope? How did it start and and what it's all about? Yeah, so I I do specialize in photos, but I have also raised other types of problems in scientific papers. So 
What most people uh-huh. might know me for is that I criticized the initial paper that in which it was claimed that hydroxychloroquine was uh, good <laughs> in getting rid of COVID, in treating COVID. So that paper was produced by a French lab in Marseille, by the lab of uh, Professor DJ Raoul. And he published that paper, oh, and, yes. and he's a very well-known microbiologist. I know him, like I'm a microbiologist mm. myself, so... And so I criticized that paper and I wrote it also on my blog. I wrote a papier post and I had many criticisms of the paper. Uh, most importantly, some people who did not really do well on hydroxychloroquine, one of them died, a couple of went to the intensive care. Those people were left out of the study. And that is, you cannot just leave out the people who don't respond to your drug of choice. You, you have to keep them in in the study. And so... There were several flaws with that paper. I criticized that. It had nothing to do with image duplication, though. And so I used my blog to write about these cases and sort of give a little bit more depth and background than I could on Papier or that I could on Twitter. So it's it's just my way of writing a little bit longer stories. Of course, it also sets me up to more legal issues. So I've also written a blog post about a doctor who claimed that he could irradiate cancer cells with his force and he was like seven kilometers away and i was irradiating the cancer cells and he had published this as a scientific paper and i'm like how do you do that so i was making a little bit fun of that and then later i uh, received a letter from his lawyer that i should um tone down (laughs) tone down my blog post which i didn't do i uh removed some tweets but i i kept my blog post that's good well, there's definitely a lot of way to go about uh, doing science, right? Bringing up your lawyer and asking someone to remove the criticism. Yeah. That's not how we do that's, that's, how that's, it works. No, and that is also what uh, Professor Raoul tried to do. So that yes. is, he also threatened me with a lawsuit, uh, not only because I criticized this hydroxychloroquine paper, but I also criticized several of his other papers in which I did find image duplications. So I, I found a total of, I think, I don't know, 60 or so several dozen papers wow. that had all kinds of problems in them and criticized them. And then he tried to silence me with threatening me with a complaint, which is a French way of sort of a police report he filed. And uh, he he had his lawyer do a whole uh, interview and he had several YouTube videos in which he called me all kinds of crazy things. And he's, he, he showed this big document on YouTube, like I'm filing a complaint against her. I've never heard of the complaint actually. So I, I, maybe it's real, maybe it's not. It's probably, hopefully, it's, it didn't uh, result in anything, but I haven't heard anything. But definitely an attempt to silence me. Yeah. Don't you think, I mean, uh, others, you, you don't seem to be taking too much aback about those things, but this is really frightening. <laughs> it especially is, no. if, well, what do you have to put against some big famous scientist? You don't have a lot of money behind you, you don't yeah. have... And even if you're right, and even if you win your lawsuit, if it goes to that, it can cost you a fortune. It will, yeah. So I am frightened. I am def- absolutely, when I get a letter like that, that is, or, or yeah, when you read and see posts written about you trying to discredit me, that is frightening. And I am very lucky that I have a lot of supporters on Twitter. So I have a big Twitter account. Mm. And when I was threatened with that lawsuit by the French doctor, 
a lot of people set up and, and signed a petition, two petitions actually, to support me. And they all said science should not be fought in the courtroom. It's sh- like she's raising legitimate concerns and answer the yeah. scientific questions. Don't threaten a scientist with a lawsuit. So uh, that has helped me a lot, knowing that I have the support of the whole scientific community. And yes, I will fight even if if I have to hire a, a lawyer and it will financially ruin me. I, I do feel it, this is a fight that needs to be fought. And I hope that people will back me up. I know they will back me up. I have a lot of Patreon supporters. And so I count on my supporters to to help me through this case, if it ever comes to that. Yeah. I remember it when that happened and when those petitions started making the rounds. We did mention it on the show. Yes. Yeah. And that's our way of supporting. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, but I hope we can we can do much more of that support in the in the future. It's very, very important what you do. Thank you. Thank you. During the pandemic, it has been more and more common with the pre-publication of papers. This was a good thought from from one point of view. We need to get the information out there. We can't wait six months or 12 months for the peer review to happen. But it means also that people, scientists, are publishing papers that haven't been reviewed at all. How has that changed the scientific literature, do you think? And will that have consequences in the future as well when this becomes more and more common? Yeah, no, I agree. So preprints are a, a double-edged sword, and they have led to a lot of misinformation out there because these papers can be picked up by yeah, all kinds of news outlets or by people who have a particular agenda, and, and they're not peer-reviewed yet. So we can criticize peer review all we want, but it does do some good things, and these papers are not peer-reviewed. So they just represent the, the viewpoints of one particular lab. And sometimes the, the conclusions or the discussion that is taken out of context and then being used by a news agency to, to sort of push out a message that uh, cannot be supported by the science yet. But preprints have been around even before COVID. I actually have used them myself several times. So from my point of view as a scientist who is well aware of preprints, not much has changed. But I do feel for the general audience, they have become more aware that there are fast tracks to publish scientific papers. So I still think it's a very good thing. There's many eyes on these papers. My worry is how do we prevent preprints from being taken as peer reviews? And, and that is something that I, a message that we need to bring out also to journalists that, mm-hmm. uh, and they're very well aware of it. At least the, the good ones are, but it's a tough decision to make we also want science to be communicated quickly so it's uh, yeah that's right it's a balance we need to seek it's something that definitely a lot of people are not aware of that there is a difference between a pre-published and a published paper and that's part of science communication i think science communication lacks a lot of the juice in that regard we don't focus on things like that when we try to make people understand how it works mm-hmm. But there are lots of skeptics out there who who try to do the job. And I've been wondering, are you involved with the skeptical movement in Europe? You being from the Netherlands yourself, are you in touch with those guys? I mean, the Netherlands is big on on quackery, for example. It's it's, it's like yeah, an anti quackery. Like the, There's a lot, lot of uh, also, yes. there are several I mean, very I mean, good. That's what, I, <laughs> that's what you meant. That's what yeah. I was referring to. Yes. But, yeah. No, we have we have our quacks too. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, are you in touch with those guys uh, or do you have, so do you work together occasionally or? 
Not as much because, I mean, one needs to focus on something, right? Like I, I focus on scientific yeah. papers that are being published. But of course, in my work, I'm tagged in a lot of other problems. I do try to focus on scientific publications and not on quacks too much. Mm-hmm. There's a couple mm-hmm. of quacks I definitely have been uh, reporting on or had my, uh, you know, I'm following from the sideline uh, to see what they're up to. Like did you know? Uh, well, and, and, you know, you can argue, is that a quack or not? Like, at least it, it used to be a well-respected scientist. And so sometimes those yeah, people yeah, turn yeah. into quacks. But there's also the, you know, the, the quacks that are just quacks that have no medical history or no, you know, no... Started out as one, yeah. Yeah, have no, no uh, diplomas whatsoever or no qualifications. I'm not mm. really in touch with the skeptics community as much as... I would love to, but that's mainly because I am being pulled in so many directions that I, I need to focus on particular topics and I cannot take on everything I would love to work in because I'm just a human can right. have to limit myself. No, but you're welcome back on this show anytime I, you I'd want love to. to I'd love to, yes. Love to give talks and uh, you, yeah. you can invite me and I hope we can see each other in person uh, very <laughs> I soon. I hope so yeah, too, yeah, yeah. yeah. So before we we go, is there anything else that we should have asked you that you want to tell us about that we missed? Um, uh, I mean, there's there's many topics we could talk about, like peer review. I I do (laughs) think, so for me, a very important message is that I do want people to trust in science. I don't want people to Mm -hmm. walk away from this podcast and think that all science is flawed because that would be the wrong message we would be sending out because I do believe in science. I always say like we need science for helping us out of the big problems that we face as a planet, as, as, you know, as humans, Mm -hmm. we have pandemic, we have climate change. We need science to measure things and we need science to help us with uh, solving these issues. So Yes, I work on fraud in science, but I am also a firm believer of science. And that is a message that could easily be misinterpreted. And there's there's many people who love science to be good. Science should be about finding the truth. Anybody who cheats in science is, in my opinion, not a scientist. And we should uh, fight that. But it's only mm-hmm. the minority of the papers that I'm working on. Very good message, I think. Mm-hmm. So to close this uh, lovely conversation that we're having here where can people go to follow your work and most importantly how can they support your work (laughs) well you can follow me on twitter so if you search for elizabeth with an s elizabeth big you will find me there's only one of me Uh, my handle on twitter is microbiome digest without the e in the middle I have um, two blog posts, as you said. I have Microbiome Digest, uh, which is not currently run by me. I have a team of volunteers, and that's just literature in the microbiome field, so not really related to this talk. And then I have ScienceIntegrityDigest.com, which is my blog where I regularly post about my work. I want to post more, but there's every day as new requests and, and <laughs> images to look at. So it's it's not, you know, I don't write very often there, but that's... Uh, where you can find me and you can find ways to contact me there. All right. So that has been a great pleasure to finally being able to talk to you. We admire your work and you. we <laughs> will keep following it. We've been building on your work occasionally, even if you never knew it, <laughs> because uh, <laughs> we occasionally come across it. We appreciate it very much. Please keep up the fantastic work and hope to have you back at some point you're welcome on the show anytime we really hope that we will be able to to meet you in person at some point 
I'd love to. Thank you for, for having me on. It was a fantastic interview. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Elizabeth Bick, goodbye. I just think that what she does is amazing. I know I get very enthusiastic about people who do some very important work in the field of science or skepticism, but uh, she does an amazing service for the world. Yes, they're that. very, very good. Somebody needs to stand up to people like Didier Raoul and others who are... <laughs> For I mean, people who are, have a, a reputation for being very good in what they're doing, and turns out that sometimes even they cheat, and when they are caught doing it, they behave less than well, put it uh, diplomatically. Mm, that's right. <laughs> but I, I mean, Didier Raoul, yeah. we have talked about before on the show, and uh, it's pretty clear that his ideas about hydroxychloroquine do not fit um, the reality, or he didn't have, and he doesn't have mm. the science behind what he has claimed, and then you should back off or we'll send Elizabeth Bick at you and uh, you will have to face the consequences. So watch out. Watch out. Yes, but then again, I don't know. It was the first time that we had a chance to chat with her, but she has this really lovely personality to her as well. Have you noticed how many of the people in the skeptical movement that we have interviewed are lovely people? Yeah, nice people. Skeptics are nice people. Believe it or not. Yeah, I would not be ready to claim that just yet because we might have a very limited access to all the skeptics out there. But so far, my experience has been that for the last 20 odd years that I've been identifying as a skeptic. But it is in a contrast with what I hear from others saying, oh, skeptics are so um, bad people. They just want to put you down. They They are mean. They yell at you. It it turns out not the skeptics I know. As you said, we've had a limited number of people on our podcast, but not that limited. We have had 112 different people interviewed on this show. Actually, Mm. 113, counting Elizabeth, which is not in the statistics as of this recording, most of them are nice, (laughs) believe it or not. So, Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we don't tend to interview assholes anyway. I have to tell you that I do have also limited experience with assholes in the skeptical movement. That's not the norm, apparently. Yeah. If you go to the conferences that we hope will restart this year, like QED and the European Skeptics Congress, everybody's very lovely. We have a great time. Everybody's very considerate, very polite, very interested, interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah. Skeptics are nice people. Let's have that established. Exactly. Do check out the interview archive and uh, you have an interview index courtesy of uh, Pontus Böckmann, who's put a lot of work into that. And uh, if you go on the website, you will find a button on the right hand side that says become a patron. What is that, Andras? Tell me what that is all about. That is something to help the people who are providing you with the content nice that people. you listen to week after week. Yeah, yeah nice people. <laughs> we try to be nice and we try to be informative. We try to provide you with a lot of interesting and important content. And if you think that's worth a couple of your euros, dollars or whatever currency you use, then uh, why don't you go and support 
our show. Your money is not going to support our families and such. It's just to cover our expenses related to running the website, uh, having the equipment that we record with, or occasionally when the conference season starts and we can actually attend events, we will use that to be able to attend those events as well. So that's a lot of help and uh, we really appreciate everyone's help who has donated so far well thank you very much in advance if you're thinking about it and if you will actually do that exactly yes very good thank you very much with that i think we should probably conclude this show hope you enjoyed the interview and uh, we've definitely enjoyed it it was lovely to have uh, elizabeth bick on the show thank you very much pontus for joining me today thank you Many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Cheers. Peace out. Hey, do. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe <laughs> Mixed up the Cheers. mixed up the <laughs> thing there now. Okay, very good. Okay, this should be doable, I think.